You're listening to The Lively Show, episode 115. Welcome to The Lively Show. I'm your host, Jess Lively, and this blogcast is designed to uplift, inspire, and add a little extra intention to your everyday. Welcome to the show, guys. Thank you so much, as always, for listening. Today's episode is sponsored by PrepDish.com. At the end of the episode, I'll be doing a mini interview with PrepDish fan and user Kate Stoltzfus about her experience with the service. Today's episode is also sponsored by Audible.com. Audible is a great way to keep up with your reading the way you listen to your podcasts. They have a huge selection of audiobooks, including today's interview subject, Playing Big by Tara Moore. Hop over to audible.com backslash lively to get a free 30-day trial of the service and a free book, which you can use, of course, for playing big by signing up again at audible.com backslash lively. Also, keep in mind that I am still doing one more free online intention setting workshop next week for you in honor of the upcoming Life with Intention online class launching this February. In this live online workshop, I'll be teaching you how to set values-based intentions for every area of your life. There's no better way to kick off 2016 than to tap into what is truly most important to you right now. Save your spot by heading over to lifewithintentiononline.com backslash intention setting. And now on to today's show. Today, we're speaking with author and coach Tara Moore of taramore.com. Tara is passionate about helping people play big in their lives. And today we're speaking exactly about that subject and her book, Playing Big. This episode is a fascinating one. We're going to go deep in a lot of different aspects of why women tend to play small in our lives and how we can change that approach. And also, she's going to work with me personally through one of the ways I've been thinking that I've been playing small in my own life. As you listen to that part in particular, I hope you try to do the work in your own life while we go through the process on whatever might be something that you're playing small about. So as she coaches me, try to put yourself into my shoes by thinking about whatever is bothering you when I share what's bothering me and then hear her responses and see if the guided exercise especially is helpful for you to tap into something that's going to bring you more peace and understanding about your circumstances. Let's go to the show. Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thanks so much for having me. Tell us how you got to where you are. I had a very unusual and I think uh, really incredible childhood. My mom was passionate about psychology and personal growth. She wasn't a psychologist, but she I call her a bedroom mystic because her bedroom was full of books from every religious tradition around the world. And she was always steeped in them and was always talking to me from a very young age about our inner lives. Literally, I can remember getting picked up from kindergarten one day and telling her that this boy had been teasing me on the playground. And she said, well, what do you think is going on for him at home that would cause him to tease other kids on the playground? So that's how I was raised. And then as a teenager, really embraced my own reading and psychology and personal growth and all of that, but also was in a family that really valued education and was sort of encouraged to be in that very traditional intellectual student path. So I kind of had my foot in one world and the rigorous secular academic world and one foot in the like, let me run to the new age bookstore after school. And then always was really alert to how women's voices were missing. And so all of those interests led me to do the work that I'm doing now. And what is that exactly? 
Fundamentally, I think of myself as a creative and a writer and an artist because what I love most about my work is paying attention to what's going on in my life and what I'm seeing in my clients and in the lives of the people around me and looking for language for that and ways to articulate it and ways to help us work with what's happening for us. And then on the more practical language, what that means is I write mostly about women's well-being and women defining their own paths of playing big. And then I teach a sort of experiential six-month journey, taking women through that playing big process. So speaking and teaching and writing about how we can change our lives from the inside out. I think you and I are soul sisters with our business backgrounds and personal spiritual journeys and everything that we're working on. And it was a joy to read your new book, Playing Big, and get to see your process in action. So before we get into the process itself, I would first like to talk about this idea of playing big and contrasting it with playing small. In the book, you talk about the external and interior barriers that affect women when it comes to playing small in our lives. So do you mind sharing what you think this playing small thing is and why we are doing it so often? So a lot of times the the whole conversation about women's empowerment gets divided. Well, there's the people who are interested in the external barriers to women's advancement, which is, you know, discrimination and the pay gap and the objectification of women, all the things that come from the outside, from the culture. And then there's the other branch, which is talking about the internal stuff, women's self-doubt and the ways we hold ourselves back. I really believe that those things are not separate, that If you think about what it means to be a woman today, it means you are alive at this moment of huge, huge change where we're coming out of this period where there were enormous external barriers isn't even the right word. I mean, really, women not having political rights, ability to own financial property, ability to protect themselves, no sense of public voice in the public realm. And now we're moving out of that period. And what that means is that there's a lot of external change that needs to happen. But there's also a lot that we've been left with as the legacy of that past that's internal to us. And so to me, doing inner work, it has everything to do with the political and social change that's possible in this moment. And we're really in a transitional moment and we can all participate in helping to move all women towards living with a new kind of freedom and embracing the freedoms that we now have. So let's break that down a little bit. So when it comes to interior barriers that we might be holding on to from this legacy, as someone who's 31 years old right now, I'm not sure what my legacy is that I'm operating under. Does that make sense? So are there any mindsets that people that might be listening might also be kind of like me going, all right, where are those? Where's that legacy? Some of it is the way our inner critic shows up. So that legacy of for women, it's often, I don't really like the leadership thing. I'm not a leader. I just want to be a team player. I'm not good at math and science stuff. I'm not good at negotiating. I'm not good at quantitative stuff. I'm not ready for that yet. I need 20 more years experience first. I need to get a PhD in that topic in order to have something to say about it. Those are all actually not individual issues. That's, you know, one of the ways that that legacy shows up. Having a fear of coming across as too abrasive or too aggressive or worries about people not liking me. The feeling that criticism or controversy, if it came my way, would be really devastating. 
that might be. Also, of course, all the stuff that every woman in our culture, I think at some level, I feel like no matter how empowered I think a woman is, eventually it'll come out like she's not thrilled with the way her body looks. She does think it needs to look different. She does spend a lot of time kind of objectifying herself in terms of looking at herself from the outside and evaluating that. All of those are vestiges of parts of our culture that I hope we can move beyond. Do you think that men have those too and they're just not vulnerably sharing them or do you think they're just devoid of them? I think they absolutely have them and it's sort of the other side of the coin. So where women's inner critic might say, I'm not good at that financial stuff or you know, not everybody's, but in general, the research shows that more women have self-doubt around those things that are stereotypically associated with masculinity in our culture. Men have the opposite. They're going to tend to feel more self-doubt around, I'm not good at that communication stuff. I'm not good at reading other people or listening. But the other piece that's different for men is, whereas men may have the self-doubts, they get a lot of cultural encouragement to fight anyway and show up as doing the bold, heroic thing anyway. I kind of think of it as like, you know, we have our fight or flight response to scary things. Women are encouraged to do the flight and men are encouraged to do the fight response. And so then that translates into really different kinds of actions. So for women, if they have that inner critic giving them this feedback, what does playing small actually look like in their lives? Well, my working shorthand definition for playing big is that playing big is about being more loyal to your dreams than to your fears. And that really comes out of my own journey of doing work that uh, I used to work in the social sector and philanthropy. And I had a job that, you know, looked fine on paper. I didn't hate my job. I liked it perfectly fine. But when I got honest with myself, I knew that the truth was I had really turned my back on the longings that I felt inside to do something creative, to write, to make more of an individual contribution. And I was turning my back because I was scared. I was scared of not being good enough. I was scared of being too woo-woo. I was scared of being told I wasn't a good writer. I mean, it was all about fear. And I think at some level, all of us have some tug of war going on inside between the dreams and callings that are really deep down in there and the fears and the desires that we have to stay completely safe from any emotional risk and to blend in with the crowd. And playing big is really about shifting your loyalty to your dreams. And I always like to underline that I'm not saying playing big is about achieving every single one of those dreams. It doesn't require figuring out how to achieve those dreams. It starts with simply the inner shift of who am I arguing for? Am I going to argue against the dreams and rationalize them away? Or am I going to say to them, honey, I have no idea how we're going to get there. But from now on, I'm at least going to help us try. That's the shift. That's the beginning of playing bigger. And playing bigger doesn't need to be on a grand scale. It doesn't mean that you need to be on the stage per se, correct? Right. It's not a literal big of, it doesn't necessarily mean a bigger audience or bigger revenue or bigger title. For some women, that may align with their playing big callings. For other women, playing big sometimes is stepping out of what looks big and prestigious into what they really want to do, which might be smaller or less prestigious. For some women, it's about 
developing a new kind of set of beliefs about themselves and living out of those. For some, it's reclaiming a creative love that is on the side of their careers, but that really takes a lot of courage for them to own. So it looks really different. And only the individual woman can define for herself what playing big truly is for her, because only she knows what she's really not doing, again, because of fear. That's something that I've really tried to hone in on in the Lively Show episodes and guests I've had on is to show Yes, there can be that person on the stage that's going to speak to us, but also that person that's deliberately choosing to step away from something like the stage to really honor that season of their life as a mother or in some other ways that are really aligned with their uppercase V values, as I call them, through the work I do. Now, moving on and actually to apply your process, I tried to figure out instead of just asking you, hey, what are the steps we should do to play big? That's kind of boring and it's kind of something you've done in a lot of interviews. But I would actually today, as I was reading your book, look at a thought that came up for me that I realized I might be playing small in my own life with and seeing if we can look at that belief that I'm having and apply your process to it. Does that sound good? Sounds great. Let's jump in. Okay. So here is how I think as I'm in this new chapter of my life, doing the career of my dreams that I've spent 10 years (laughs) slowly plodding along to get to to helping people on this scale that I am and this way that I'm doing it. What I've realized is that I think I've been limiting my possibilities in my own life based on not wanting to do things that other people's circumstances would not allow. So to put that another way, I could do a lot of crazy things that could be very hard to relate to. For example, some people listening to the show might have very different life circumstances and therefore I'm afraid that if I was to go do those things that might be more unusual or different, that I'd somehow disappoint them or upset them or just not even be able to relate to them. Maybe they wouldn't like me as much if I was doing those things. And I think that is a female thing because I look at people like Tim Ferriss or Lewis Howes or other people that are males in my career industry And no one looks at their, you know, more unusual life choices as negative. They are inspired by them. But for some reason, as a female, I'm I'm hitting a rock there. I'm bumping into it. So I'd love your help. Yeah. Which of those things do you feel like you truly would love to do? Well, I would like to travel in Europe for a few months. But honestly, I could live in Europe or I could live in Australia. I don't even have to just visit these places. I think that part of me doesn't even know. There's so many opportunities. I say like right now, my life is like Sandra Bullock in gravity. and I'm just floating along in space, but nothing is grounding me except for the fact that right now I own a house in Michigan and I could sell that tomorrow if I wanted to. There's no anchor point right now other than the present moment, which is not telling me to go do something. Maybe I don't have to worry about it at all. Maybe it's just not the right time. And when it is, I'll go take that leap. But part of me is also wondering if I'm self-censoring what might appear to me based on what would be relatable to other women. So what I'm hearing is it's not that there's a particular thing calling you, but there's an awareness of, wow, I have so many options. And that in itself probably is making you feel different from the crowd because that's not many people's reality And that feels a little like, what is that? Is that that's a little scary in itself? And if I were to really do things that aren't available to others, how would they receive it? If you can imagine, like, what's the reaction that you most fear people having or the thing that you really don't want them to say, if you picture doing some of those things? She's not really helping me anymore because she doesn't have a life like I have. So what she says doesn't apply to me. Okay, got it. 
So what I'd love to do is let's both close our eyes for a moment and take a deep breath and take another deep breath and just notice if you're holding any tension in your body and imagine it seeping out of your body just like ripples going out of the water. And let's bring to mind the vision of your future self. You've done some visioning work before, and there's sort of a vision of the future you that you can call to mind. And you might picture her home and see yourself walking over to her home, paying her a visit. And she invites you into her home warmly. She's so happy to see you. And she brings you to her favorite place in the house to have a chat. And then go ahead and share with her just silently to yourself, share with her the dilemma that you just shared. There's these things on the horizon. Share the concern you have and see how she responds and really pause to hear from her. I heard, you don't have anything to worry about. I will take care of you. And how did it feel when she said that? I still feel nervous, (laughs) but it was nice to hear her say it in such a calm way. So you could even go back to her now and say, I still feel nervous and see what she says about that. I know you do, but I'm here for you. What we just did is we just visited with Jess's inner mentor, which is a big part of the playing big approach that we all have this vision of an older, wiser self. And we go through that process from the start. If you don't have that vision already, which most of us don't initially But just like you found, her answers are always really calm, really clear, really simple. And listening from the outside, they can sound so simple that it's like, well, how could that help, right? Or sometimes even what she says sounds cliche from the outside. But what people find when they do it for themselves is there's a realness and an emotional resonance there that gives some new perspective on the situation. It's interesting. So I was sharing with you before we got on the call that I have done a visioning exercise. It's not exactly the same, but it's similar in that you think about your future. And I had this crazy vision of myself that was so clear, but I was standing in a white house on a hill that had been recently renovated, but I think it was older. And I was holding a baby in a nursery. And I was so incredibly happy. But that was not the me that I just visited in the house because when I did that visioning exercise and saw the other person holding the baby, she's probably closer to my age at this point. So I just like didn't feel like going to the me with the baby <laughs> was really going to give me the answer. I went to like me in the 50s, <laughs> you know, that kind of thing. So I went to an older woman of me and asked the advice to her. And that's great. And, you know, anytime we do those exercises, the key part, in my view, with a visioning exercise is that we're not just asking ourselves, you know, who do I want to be in 20 years? Or what do I think I'm going to be in 20 years? Because then we get our conscious mind and our ego's hopes and our ego's fears and all of that stuff. We want to actually relax and really go into the more visual part of our brain and let our unconscious and our wisdom bring us something that we wouldn't come up with on our own. And it's interesting because even the vision of you at 30, I would say it sounds like there's a lot of symbolic elements in there where I would want to know 
what was the feeling of that house like? And what does that tell you about the energy that you want in your life? Or what does it mean to be up in that setting on a hill? What does that connote for you symbolically? And what might the baby be if not a literal baby? And same thing with the 20 years in the future. There's usually some literal elements, but a lot of symbolism in what we see. And the symbolism is about what not just our future self, but our true self and the energy that we want to bring more into our life now. Yeah, the older me's house was different than the younger vision of me. And that's interesting. I've always thought it was really a baby. One of the interesting things about the younger me vision was how overwhelmed I was by the blessings of my life. That was a very, I actually felt small in comparison to the gratitude I felt in my life, if that makes sense. Like it, like the gratitude was not overwhelming in a negative way, but in a all-encompassing way. It's really beautiful. So now that I have that perspective from the 50-year-old me, what do I do next? Now that I have that, do I just do it anyways, feel the fear and do it anyways, or what's the next step? There's well, and I would say this is true for everything in my work, not one right step. I think of it as like there's different doorways that you could go into as next possible next step. So one of them would be to look at what is actually calling you. Because one thing I heard in what you were saying is there was a lot more emphasis on I could do all these different things than I want to do. And one of the terms I use in my work is the difference between a should goal and a gift goal. And a lot of times we have shoulds without even realizing it. So there might be a little bit of a should in there. Like I should be doing wild and crazy things. I should be using all the freedoms I have. I should be, you know, taking advantage of these freedoms in a way. I mean, it's interesting that actually there are these male models of like traveling the world. That is a more masculine energy in some sense than what you might want to do with the freedoms that you have. So looking at what next step would truly feel like a huge gift to yourself and what do you feel called towards? And I think we can recognize our callings by where are you having a a persistent vision of something that's coming to you about something you want to create or something that could be different? Or where are you feeling particularly pained by some aspect of your life, of the status quo in our world, and feeling like, you know, this is yours to do, this next thing, this next step. Looking for that and listening for that. So that would be one angle. And and then you can use that inner mentor's help with each step of how would she approach this? How, what's her response to this concern or fear that I'm having? So that's one door. The other door that might be interesting to look at is more around this question of what other people think. You know, I find that for every woman, there is some point in her playing big journey where the thing that is in the way is her own relationship to praise and criticism. It could be a pattern of really seeking praise, depending on praise feeling the need for validation. It could be the fear of criticism or controversy. It could be avoiding praise. For some women, it's like, I don't, I'm not going to do anything that brings praise. So we kind of need to do some updating there. So that would be a place to get curious too, of what is the reaction that I'm really fearing and how can I reframe that so that it's not holding me back? 
Actually, that one's an interesting one for me personally. I'm sure that other people listening have probably hopefully done the exercise along with me and inserted their own situation there and then maybe looked at those doorways you just shared for themselves and what may be true. And one of the interesting things for myself when it comes to praise and criticism is when I recently shared my decision to mutually uncouple with my partner and my husband, I knew that was going to be possibly a polarizing subject. And I went into that very clear, 100%, a million percent, that my intuition was right and that no matter what other people's opinions of that was, it was right for us. What's interesting about this potential fear of criticism, I think it comes from one of your descriptions of two different types of fears, Yira and Pahad. The one that is about worrying about the future, right? I'm projecting this fear about people's criticism about something I might feel like doing in the future. <laughs> like It's just purely a concept of there might be this time where this might happen, or that maybe I'm not living my full life if I don't take advantage of every crazy opportunity that might be presented right now. Yes, this is such a light bulb thing for me when I first read about these two different types of fear. These are two ancient terms for fear. They're the Hebrew words that show up in the Old Testament as the two terms that are used when different characters in the Hebrew Bible narratives are experiencing fear-like feelings. So these are a few thousand years old, but I think they're so relevant today and we've sort of lost them. So the first one is pachad. And the definition of pachad is it's the fear of projected things or imagined things. So this is exactly as you're saying, when we imagine what could happen. Oh my gosh, the plane is going to crash. Oh, I'm going to make a fool of myself. Oh, they're not going to want to talk to me. Oh, they're going to laugh at my attempt to do that. You know, all of our uh, usually very overreactive, ego-driven fears of what could happen. And that's the kind of fear most of us are the most familiar with, right? And that we kind of, we have some level of collective conversation about it. The second term that's used for fear, where things get very interesting, and that is yura. And there's three different kinds of instances where that term is used in the Old Testament. So one is to describe when people are suddenly inhabiting a larger space than they're used to. And you can think of that as a literal physical space or more of a metaphoric larger space. The second is when they suddenly come into possession of more energy than they normally have. And the third is when they're in the presence of the divine or the sacred. So when Moses is at the burning bush, this is the word that's used to describe how he feels. So why is this relevant to us? I would say that when we step into our playing bigger, when we're following a calling in our life, when we're speaking up against something that's our truth, that's hard to say, we're in all of those places. We're connecting to something sacred in ourselves. We are getting hooked up to more energy than we're used to as we do when we own our truth or pursue a calling. And we are often, you know, in that playing big journey, also stepping into a larger space or inhabiting a larger space, whether that's more reach or more visibility or a literal bigger space in some way. And so the practical side of this is that we can start to notice which type of fear am I feeling? So Pachad will normally feel like that sense of stress and constraint and panic about a possible future outcome. It's always about what could happen in the, in the future. Yura is more of a sensation that we get because of what's happening right then in the moment. 
And it feels like fear, but it also has a quality of awe or exhilaration or thrill to it. And it can feel uncomfortable because it is this heightened, not in our comfort safety zone kind of state. And so we can want to escape it or we can think it means there's something off track about what we're doing. But really, we just want to breathe into and savor those moments that make us feel yura. When we're feeling pahad, we want to be very mindful about it and not let that overreactive, overconservative fear of what could happen mislead us. I've been feeling the pahad. And I think, would you say that the yura is an upper limit problem as I think it's Gay Hendricks coined the term? Um, you could absolutely look at it that way. I actually think of it as that when we're in Yira, when we're pursuing a calling, when we're in touch with the sacred, part of what's happening is we're moving out of our ego self into our more spiritual self. And the ego does not like that. So it's the fear of the ego has of the ego being transcended that's coming up. Gotcha. Well, I think this is definitely an ego sphere right now because my intuition is not telling me to do anything other than enjoy the moment I'm in. <laughs> there is this kind of subtle and it's probably ego just kind of urging me not to just settle into something that is routine because that could be playing small in and of itself for myself going forward. I'm in like a very just new phase, I guess. Yeah, absolutely. So is there any other pieces of the process that we should look at before I dive into my other questions I have for you? Well, the piece that I'd add, which you're kind of what you said is just pointing to is that it might take some real courage to define what playing big means to you at this stage, because it might not look like something that looks big and flashy from the outside. I know I'm like really happy right now. <laughs> and I thought I was going to want to move back to Austin where I just moved from. Now that I have all this flexibility, I'm not trying to, you know, have kids in a school system or any of those types of things. And I actually was there over the holidays and I didn't feel the urge. And I'm someone who's very impulsive. The minute my intuition tells me to leap, I leap. And I didn't feel it. And I was like, actually, I had a really great few months leading up to the holidays before going to Austin. And I was excited to come back to my little house and my friends that I have here in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It's just so funny because if you couldn't have paid me a million dollars to move back to Ann Arbor as a single person <laughs> at 31, that just would not have been something after Chicago and Austin that I would have even considered. But it's kind of become this perfect little place for me, at least at this point. And I think maybe, yeah, there's some coming to terms with the fact that like, maybe I'm right where I need to be for right now. Yeah, sounds like it. And embracing what playing big looks like for you right now and trusting that even if it's not what it looks like to a lot of other people or what part of your, your inner critic thinks maybe it should be, you know, a big long list of adventures. When we were going through the process of uncoupling, I was really just wanting to go a million miles an hour in my career and just go around. I don't know. Simon Sinek kind of comes to mind as like someone I would like thought I would like be like and wanted to do that type of thing. And now that I'm actually here, there's a little bit more rooting that's happening than flying, if that makes sense. Yes. We are so on the same page because my last blog post was about my me feeling like the last 10 years or so of my life were about branching out and bearing fruit and that now I'm entering this season of putting down roots, which is a little scary if you've been defined by those metrics of bearing fruit, bearing fruit, bearing fruit out in the world through your work. 
I have a friend and colleague who's another wonderful coach, Leanne Raymond, who really uses those metaphors of different chapters in our lives for planting seeds and for nurturing the seeds and for growing roots and branching out and bearing fruit. And she's helped me just be more conscious of that, that those are different seasons. And it's so important and valid to have all of them. Just having this aha moment, because I have this question staring at me that I was going to ask you next. And I think this totally ties into what we're already saying, which is in the book you mentioned, self-doubt can indeed motivate us to work hard and achieve. But there are some serious costs of being motivated that way. Well, I think that what I'm saying is I feel the self-doubt is motivating me (laughs) to work hard and achieve and be like Simon Sinek right now. And really, that's the serious cost right now is just unnecessary worrying and pashad in my life. Yeah, this is so, you know, I, cause I'll often, I'll give a workshop or lecture about how do we quiet the inner critic and not live run by it. And someone will always raise their hand afterwards and say, wait a second, the inner critic is my buddy. It's the inner critic that pushes me to work harder. It's the inner critic that makes me proofread something a second time and, you know, has gotten my work to this level of excellence. And I'm always like, well, let's look a little closer at that because, First of all, when we work motivated from the inner critic, that can help us achieve a certain kind of good girl, dot all the I's and cross all the T's success. And that can work in school and it can work up to a certain point in our careers. But one, we're being motivated by fear and stress. And that over time, when we have constant stress hormones flowing through our body, it's going to have a really disastrous health impact. We know that from the scientific research. But from a playing big perspective, even more importantly, your inner critic can motivate you, yes, to strive harder, to put in more hours, to double check things more, to over prepare way beyond what you needed to do. But it cannot motivate you to share your most unique ideas. It can't motivate you to speak up about something. It can't motivate you to take the kind of risk that's really going to get you and your work and your voice known and have a a strong positive impact. So it really motivates us to do the worker bee stuff, but not the game changing stuff. Um, That motivation comes from our callings, our inner mentor, learning how to manage fear and the inner critic. It's actually very aligned with what I share in Life with Intention online, my online course. We go through inner critic and inner guide, our ego and intuition for the terms that I use. I get the same thing. It's a slightly different shade of it. They'll say, you know, but what if I'm not going to, if I'm just listening to my intuition and living from my values, what if I don't achieve as much? Because I'm so used to like this output being always pushed further and further. And I say, the truth is the things you will do less of what is not truly important to you. The shiny pennies will fall away because they're shiny pennies and they're just created because there's a perception of happiness that will come from them, not a long-term meaning or fulfillment. But you will have more space in that emptiness when you drop the stuff that's unnecessary and non-essential for the most meaningful. So it's kind of a different take on that, but it's very aligned. Also, another way we're aligned is I've been doing a lot of research recently on my own book about the intersection of self-worth and work. So when you talk about unhooking ourselves from praise and criticism, which we've kind of touched on earlier in this conversation, I have a question for you. When it comes to unhooking ourselves from praise and criticism, one of the things I found in my research is how we approach highs and lows in our career overall. 
when it comes to our self-worth being fluctuating like the stock market with our career highs and lows. Do you think we could just also apply what you think works for unhooking ourselves from praise or criticism to overall highs and lows as a general concept in our careers? Yes. Where I would point people to is to look at what are the highs and lows. And if the highs and lows have to do with how other people reacted to your work, that means we need to do some unhooking. Because when women do substantive and distinctive work, they are going to get praise and criticism. And I believe that we need to look at feedback of all kinds as not telling us anything about ourselves, but only giving us information about the person or the people giving the feedback. And that's often a really radical idea for people to start to consider. And they're like, what? How can you mean that? Of course, sometimes feedback tells me something about myself, especially if it's good feedback or what if it's consistent feedback that I've gotten from 25 people. And I would still say, you know, if 25 people say that your novel is amazing, that does not tell you that your novel is amazing. It tells you that readers find it really engaging. And if 25 people tell you that they couldn't get to page 10, they were so bored, that doesn't tell you that you're a bad writer. It tells you something about what causes readers to stay engaged in the book. So really, in any feedback situation we could apply here, and of course, you know, for the entrepreneurs listening, feedback is also, do you have a lot of customers? Do you have a lot of engagement with your business? Those are all forms of feedback. We want to look at it not as information about yourself or your merit or your talent, but as information that tells you about the people giving the feedback, their preferences, their needs, their expectations, their style. And we don't do that so we can dismiss feedback. I'm a huge advocate of paying a lot of attention to feedback and incorporating it. But we're incorporating it as just strategic information about the people that we want to reach and influence, not as something personal about ourselves. Um, and, and so when we do that, you know, actually career highs and lows probably start to look really different and are more intrinsically defined. I always like to thank people when they give me a compliment or do something really out of their way nice to thank them for sharing their light with me. Thank you for taking the time to share your light with me. It's not a reflection of me. It's a reflection of where you're coming from that says so much from this nice gesture. Right. And for me, if, you know, tons of people write me about a particular post, if I were to then feel like, oh, those are the good posts and those are, that would just like send me down such a paralyzing path in terms of my own writing. So instead, I take that as information of like, oh, this tells me something about what works for the people reading. This tells me about the topics that they're interested in. And same thing on the other side, if, if nobody, you know, if I hear crickets about something, I have to look at that as information about my audience. If I looked at all of that as information about about myself, I would have stopped creating a long time ago. And you also talk about the importance of counting yourself as one of the people with a vote, which I thought was great. For sure. Yes. That was really big for me in my own creative journey of, you know, especially coming out of an academic environment and having been an English major where, you know, the whole project was about having the so-called authorities evaluate your writing. And at a certain point when I started blogging, realizing like, gosh, if I'm not counting myself here, and if I'm not saying, do I feel good about this work that I'm doing, that's really not fair to myself. So what are one or two strategies we can use to unhook ourselves when we get caught on praise or criticism? Well, one is that. So look at it as what does this tell me about the person giving the feedback, not about myself? 
And that really changes everything because then we start to get curious, like, oh, I want to learn more about what that client was expecting from me. We're not, you know, taking it personally. That's one. A second is to ask, what am I making this mean? So look at the fact of what happened, like, oh, uh, you know, this client wants to stop working with me. Look at your current, what is my current interpretation of that? Oh, it's that I screwed up on this project or, oh, it's that, you know, my prices are now too high, whatever your current interpretation is. Then brainstorm a bunch of other possible interpretations just to help yourself think about other interpretations and then go gather a little data so you can understand what the feedback's really telling you and not be in an assumption about it. Um, Another really fun exercise I recommend, especially for, well, for people doing any kind of work where they get feedback that feels vulnerable to them, which is probably most of us, go on Amazon, look up one of your favorite writers and toggle back and forth, read a five-star review, read a zero-star review, read a five-star review, read a zero-star review. It's so powerful and fun to see the range of reactions and see how people are praising and then criticizing the very same aspects of the person's work. And it can really help to train our minds in this idea that, you know, all work is going to bring a range of reactions. And that doesn't mean there's anything wrong with it. And it doesn't mean that the negative feedback even has to be incorporated. It's just the reality of doing substantive work is that it's going to bring that. Yeah, I've actually done that in the past with uh, different sites that can be critical of people online and looked up a lot of the, I don't like go to the site, but just seeing the search terms that come up when you type in certain people's names and found that it was happening to my name. And I go find other guests that had been on the show and seeing that their names would have the same term coming up. And I was like, it took me a while, but I did the same type of thing you're describing. It was kind of like reading the Amazon reviews. It was like, well, I love this person and I think they're wonderful, but they have, you know, the same criticism. And it just took me enough times to keep finding the people I truly admire and respected and loved had similar criticisms. It diluted the power of that criticism for myself, if that makes sense. That's great. That's really great. Do you think we can do it for outside of just criticism, though? Do you think we can unhook ourselves from situations, especially career-related in general, to just unhook ourselves from the reactions, the emotional responses to the ebb and flows that just happen in our careers? This is something I found in my research. Some people wanted to process their emotions better and get back to peace more quickly, and other people didn't even want to get emotional in the first place as much as possible about the highs and lows. It was an interesting exploration, and I'm excited to share it in the book. We all have to come to terms with the fact that our careers will ebb and flow. How do we want to approach those ebb and flows? Has this kind of two variants, either processing emotions better or being more peaceful about them in the first place, the situations themselves. So I was just thinking maybe we can unhook ourselves and use some of your praise and criticism techniques in a general high or a general low that might appear. And it may not be in the form of a review or feedback from your boss. I would say an ebb and flow, if it's coming from the market, is also a form of feedback, right? So anything related to that kind of ebb and flow that's coming externally, I think we can unhook from. But I know for me, you know, I would say both of those approaches are really important. There are times when almost like in a meditation, I just want to know that an emotion is there and then let it go and not dive into it. And there are other times when I really do need to process what I'm feeling in order to move forward in my life in the way that I want to. 
Exactly. And it's not that one is right or wrong. It's just people tend to have different first places they want to go to, right? So they'll have different tendencies, if you will. And it's really cool. As I was doing the research, I also found uh, Eckhart Tolle gave his interpretation of like the same thing, which was wonderful. I was like, thank you, Eckhart, for explaining your answer to this in The Power of Now. But he said for his interpretation, if you're an Eckhart Tolle fan, was the first thing is to have peace in all circumstances. So that's step one. But if you do get emotionally involved and attached, (laughs) step two is to have peace about the emotion. (laughs) AKA if you are human. I know because right, it comes from both like there's non-attachment from, you know, the philosophical approach of non-attachment and there is total acceptance in Buddhism too to feeling whatever, accepting what is. So it kind of goes both ways. The beautiful thing is both are wonderful and we have the choice, but I have found that people have different tendencies and they're very passionate about whatever their first go-to answer is most of the time. It was very fascinating to think that my way was the right way when it was really just one way, not the only way. I definitely err more on the side of I always feel, you know, when I can make the time to do it, naming what I'm feeling, putting language around it, um, expressing it through writing or verbal communication. That for me is how I move through it. And I, I mean, I guess my question or my skepticism around if I understand right, what you're saying is, is it a preference or is it a style or is it I'm really uncomfortable and afraid of what I'm feeling and I don't want to look, but now it's leaking into my life in destructive ways or hardening me as a person or, you know, causing me to be irritable because I have a lot of pent up frustration. If the costs are playing out, then I would say those emotions need to be processed, whether it's comfortable or not. So yeah, it's not about repressing the emotion and pushing it down. It's about not attachment. So letting a circumstance play out and trying to have a very open-handed approach to those things. So Amy Poehler, for example, in her book, Yes, Please. Again, it's so fun to see these people sharing their own answers in their own ways without even knowing it in their books. But Yes, Please, Amy shares treating your career like a bad boyfriend. She says that your career are so fickle that she says you don't want to treat it like a bad boyfriend's not always going to be there for you. You don't want to give all of your attention to this bad boyfriend, (laughs) basically, because it's not going to show up for you when you need it. And so she really is practicing that non-attachment, that peaceful approach to the highs and lows and not getting so wrapped up in them. Meanwhile, other people feel like that's numbing themselves and that they feel like they would not be feeling the full range of their humanity or their emotions. And then Team Peaceful follows up right away to say, you know, I feel plenty. I don't need to feel level 10 on every situation the way my ego easily could get wrapped into it. I'd rather not go there if possible. So there is like this very crazy dialogue going on between both sides. I've heard so many people thinking that their side's the right way. And then I'll have someone with the same trait say the opposite is true because they're the other tendency. It's been fascinating. Yeah, I think what feels unreliable to me is the external stuff. But I would not say that my work is at all like a bad boyfriend. It's probably my work, my actual work, which is not, you know, did a TV show call this week or what was the book sale, but my actual work, the writing, the coaching, the core, that's probably one of the most reliable and sustaining forces in my life. Yeah, you're talking about the actions of you doing the work versus the outcomes of the work you do. Yes, and I feel like to consistently create, I have to define my highs and lows in terms of what I can control, which would be the level of 
honesty and courage, which I do my work and, you know, like a high for me would be, I was so scared to hit publish and I did. It wouldn't be something out of my control, like publication I really wanted to get into. I had an article in. Yeah, that sounds like non-attachment because you're not attaching to the outcome. Right. I get, yeah. So you are team peaceful. You are doing team peaceful by not defining the highs and lows by the outcomes themselves. So therefore, you're peaceful about those outcome highs and lows as they come or whatever they might be. Yes, I'm on team peaceful. Yeah, exactly. And everyone's going to have their own thing. So for anyone listening, you totally may be team process. And I'll say I've had people that are super sensitive on both sides of the spectrum. Sensitive people saying they're so sensitive, they would never want to lose this trait about themselves. And I've had people say, I am sensitive and I do not need to feel level 10 all the time. Trust me, I feel enough without getting wrapped into it. I've had people that are super motivated. HR representatives have said, you know, I know those team peacefuls, they're they're not really invested. They're not the high performers. And then I've had people on Team Peaceful go, I want to know how old those uh, team processors are and how many people work for them because she's a seven-figure business owner with a lot of staff. And so she thinks that they just haven't had enough stress in their lives to get to Team Peaceful. It's fascinating. Every side has its opinion on the other side. And I've just heard through the interviews, it was never something I would have arrived at personally, but just through the anecdotes of the, the people alone. And it also is a very interesting dynamic when you consider how people work together in difficult situations. There were some fascinating stories of people saying, oh my gosh, this makes so much sense. And why my office was like tearing each other's faces off during a really difficult, prolonged period of stress because the team peacefuls approached it in a different way than the team processors. And there was a lot of angst and misunderstanding between each group's approach because there's no language around it. So anyways, super excited to go into that more in the book. Now I'd like to wrap up with you here. What doubts or internal resistance are you currently facing in your life right now? For me, my playing big edge is around being braver in writing about political and social things. There's a lot that for my whole life, I have had strong opinions about and strong objections to the way things are. And it's always been a place where I felt a little intimidated by, by my own inner critic to speak up. And so now I'm starting to write more about that and moving towards that and grapple with my fears. So that's a big edge for me right now. I can imagine that's got to be kind of scary especially as the women, like all the things we've said about wanting to be liked and approved of. Politics is pretty polarizing. Totally. Absolutely. And what would you tell someone who's just starting out on this journey? I would say that a great place to start is to listen for the voice of your inner critic. And every time you hear it, ask yourself, what would the safety instinct in me be trying to protect me from right now? And start to see how when self-doubt is speaking up or even what sounds to you like an accurate self-assessment, what you're really hearing is the safety instinct part of you that never wants to have any emotional ouchie moments of any kind trying to get you to go back into the comfort zone. And then you can choose what part of you you want to listen to. Tara, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks for having me. And thanks to everyone who was listening. And there you have it. Thank you so much for listening, and Tara, thank you for coming on the show. If you would like to send Tara a message, you can do so over on Twitter, at Tara Sophia. 
And if you'd like to find me on Instagram, Snapchat, and Twitter, you can do so over at Jess C as in vitamin C lively. Not sure if you guys can tell, but I am still sick, (laughs) still battling this cold. So the sniffles are aplenty. And for show notes, of course, you can go over to JessLively.com slash Tara Moore and the M-O-H-R. Also, please keep in mind, again, I am doing one more free online intention setting workshop next week for you in honor of Life with Intention opening this February. I'll be teaching you for free how to set values-based intentions for every area of your life. To save your spot, head over to lifewithintentiononline.com slash intention setting. I can't wait to see you in class and start to work with you. And again, to get a free 30-day trial of audible.com and get a free book credit, which you can use to listen to Playing Big by Tara Moore, go over to audible.com backslash lively. Thank you, Audible, so much for supporting the show and giving these wonderful services so we could all listen to books for free through this trial. Now, before I share who's coming up next week on the show, let's speak with PrepDish user Kate Stolzfus about PrepDish.com. Hi, Kate. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hi, Jess. Thanks for having me. All right. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Well, I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania with my husband, Nick, and my cat, Sergeant Pepper. (laughs) I am an entrepreneur. I co-own a business called Propel, and we bring women together both online and off to connect about business and entrepreneurship. And we also own together some rental properties and run two Airbnb units. That's awesome. How's the Airbnb stuff going? Oh, we have so much fun with it. We've been doing it for about three years now, and it's been quite busy, and we've met so many cool people. We love it. So you are also a big fan, besides Airbnb, about PrepDish. So tell us what PrepDish.com is all about. PrepDish is an email subscription where you get convenient meal plans sent to your email every week. There's a grocery list, a step-by-step process to prep your meals, and then cooking instructions for each day of the week. How does it actually work once you've signed up? So once you've signed up, you will start receiving weekly emails with everything that you need for the week. And it also includes your prep dish recipes for the rest of the weeks during the month. And then when you have your meal plans, you take them with you to the grocery store, buy your ingredients, and then come home two to three hours to prep your food for the week, but then you are set. And so with every meal during the week, you have all these ingredients ready to go. How long have you been using it? I actually heard about PrepDish on The Lively Show, and it's been a few months now, and I haven't used it religiously every week, but whenever I've needed it, it has been very, very handy and has saved me a lot of time. I know that they focus on very healthful eating. What are the meal plans focused around in terms of dietary restrictions and that kind of thing? They are paleo and gluten-free. What I love the most about the recipes is that they are very fresh They use a lot of fresh ingredients, so lots of vegetables, fruits, proteins. Usually there's a steak, a chicken, and a a fish dish each week, and then also a vegetarian dish. So why do you personally love it so much, and how has it changed your life? I love it so much because I have always loved cooking, but I have always dreaded meal planning. What Prep Dish really solved for me was that kind of nitty-gritty meal planning, making your grocery list that has saved me so much time and headache. (laughs) And my husband and I would always get to the grocery store and be like, oh, so what do we want to eat this week? And we would just kind of look at each other blankly. So this has solved that for us. It has introduced us to a lot of new foods and new ways of preparation techniques. And it's been a lot of fun. So for anyone out there interested in giving Prep Dish a try, 
PrepDish has a special offer for Lively Show listeners this January. If you're listening in January, you can get this deal, which is 50% off the year-long subscription by going over to PrepDish.com Lively. Again, that's PrepDish.com Lively in order to get a year-long subscription for 50% off. So it's a great way to head into the new year, save time, save money, and eat healthier. So Kate, thank you so much for coming on the show. If people want to follow up with you, where can they find you? You can find me on Instagram and my business at We Propel. Awesome. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. And now for a sneak peek. Next week on the show, we're speaking with health and fitness coach Anna Locke of AnnaMariaLock.com about her journey and her experience with Life with Intention online. Anna is an alum of Life with Intention, and I can't wait to share with you her experience so it can give you a better understanding of what the class is all about and whether it's the right fit for you, as well as to share her awesome and inspiring story. Until then, may something wonderful happen to you today. 